You know, as I look at, at Scripture, as I look at and I read uh, Scripture, the one thing that I think of over and over again is, like, I want to see the words that I read in Scripture, I want to see that happen today. I don't want just to be like, okay, that, that happened back then. I, no, but I want to see it lived out today. Because I believe the things that we see in Scripture, the things that we read about, the, the, the character of God, His nature, and who He is, that, that, that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and, and the things that we read about, we can expect and long to see today. I was thinking uh, here on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, or on whatever, on Be Real, um, for those of you who know that, um, uh, I've, I've been seeing these pictures where it says, um, Instagram or social media, and then the next picture is reality. And often reality looks a lot different than the picture because you can frame a picture to look a certain way. You can frame a picture to, to look like this person is standing on the edge of this cliff or standing over this, this big, empty uh, uh, canyon. And then you pull back and it really isn't that impressive at all. And as I thought about that, I'm like, I don't want to approach Scripture that way. Like, oh, like, okay, this is, these are just words that maybe happened back then, but I, I want to approach Scripture with this expectation that what we read about today, or what we read about in Scripture, can happen today. That there's this expectation in us, and a belief in us, that, that God's kingdom is moving and advancing, and God's kingdom wants to, to break into our world today. And so I want to look at Acts 11, and I read this passage last week, and I want to highlight a couple things of the church in Antioch that we see in Acts 11 and also Acts 13. And have an expectation rise up in us that, that what we see in Acts 11 and 13 can and should happen today. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 11, or if you're following on the app, you can do that uh, right now. And so I'm going to start reading in verse 19. And, and in the, this is a story of the church in Antioch. And, and actually, as we look at Acts 10 and Acts 11, this is when the gospel is going forward to the Gentiles, those who were, were not Jews. And so the, the gospel is moving from uh, the Jews to the Gentiles. And so really in Acts 10 and 11, this is our beginning. This is the, the story of how uh, the, the church to the, the, the Gentiles uh, began. And so in Acts 10, we see that the gospel goes forth to uh, a man named Cornelius, who is a devout man of God who had been praying, and Peter brings the gospel to Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit falls on him and his family, and uh, um, he comes to faith in Jesus. And so then we read that the gospel goes to uh, the city of Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, Christians went there as they were running for their lives, being persecuted by Saul in Jerusalem. They, they go 300 miles north to Antioch. The leaders stay in Jerusalem. And so these are just some people who go up to Antioch, and this is what happens. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And I shared this last week, but I want to share it again, is here we're just some ordinary people. We don't get their names. We don't get anything about them. We know that they weren't leaders in, in the church in Jerusalem because those leaders stayed in Jerusalem. These were people who um, had believed in the gospel. 
who had been gripped by the love of Jesus, and as they ran for their lives 300 miles north, they share the gospel with people that they interact with. They, they share the hope that they have in Jesus. And I, I think of Antioch, and, and Antioch was this, this beautiful place, beautiful place in, in, in modern-day Syria, located on a river, on a body of water. I think I actually have a picture of it. It is a mountainous area, beautiful location. And I look at that, 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 that location, and this city had wealth, the city had influence, the city uh, had so much going on. There was a lot of immorality as well in the city, but this was a, there was a lot of, um, uh, this, this city had a lot of influence. There was a lot going on, but the thing that hit me this week as I was thinking of Antioch, there was something missing in this beautiful location. There was something that was missing in people's lives, and so as believers came and they preached the gospel, they preached the, the, the gospel to these people, the lives were transformed. And only the power of the gospel has the power to, to bring freedom into somebody's life, to transform lives. You know, I, I never want to forget that there is a longing deep down in every soul that is alive, a longing to have a relationship with God, a longing to say, wondering, okay, am I all right with God? Am I enough? And for years, for, for, for thousands of years, there's always been religion that has, has said, you know what, you have to do a certain number of things in order for you to be right with God. And the beauty of the gospel is that it comes crashing in and it says, it's not what you have done, but it has been, it's what has been done for you. It's believing and receiving the good news of Jesus and what he has done for you. And there's nothing like the gospel to transform a life. There's nothing like the gospel to bring freedom and to bring life. And here as the gospel goes to Antioch, this beautiful city, people's lives, it says a, many, a great number of them were brought from death to life. The hand of the Lord was on these people that shared the gospel, and people's lives were absolutely transformed. There's nothing like the gospel to rescue somebody from brokenness and bring them into a relationship with God. We can never stop preaching the gospel because there are people all around the city who are under the weight of sin, wondering what, knowing what they've done in the past, wondering if they can ever receive freedom from that. And the only way that a person can receive freedom is through by believing and turning to Jesus. And this morning, I want to ask you here today, have you done that? If you're overwhelmed by the, the weight of sin, have you turned to Jesus who died the death that you deserve so that you could have life? Have you put your faith in Jesus because there's only one way to be saved and it's through believing and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel is the only thing that can transform a life, transform a heart. I also think when I think about the gospel, I think it's something that we need to preach to ourselves on a regular basis because I know the weight that, that people can be under, and the, the battle in the mind, and the battle that, that we feel on a, a daily basis. And so it's important to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remember, to remind ourselves that we are no longer just uh, sinners saved by grace. No, in Christ we are a new creation, that we are our saints, that we are chosen, that we are accepted. And it's so important to remind ourselves of our identity on a regular basis. And so may we never lose sight of the gospel. May we be so focused on it every single day. And here were these believers who traveled to Antioch, and they preached the gospel. They proclaimed the gospel, and many lives were transformed. And I appreciate their boldness and their passion to go into the city that was so corrupt and say there's only hope through Jesus. They didn't shrink back. They stepped forward, and they proclaimed it boldly. But this wasn't the only thing that they were known for. 
Let's continue to read in verse 22. It says, The report of this, that many, a great number, believed and turned to the Lord. A report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent, to Barnabas, sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas sent to Tarsus and to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, for a whole, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I love this picture here, that there was this longing of the people in Antioch to be equipped to grow in their relationship with Jesus. Because following Jesus isn't just about making a one-time decision and saying, okay, I'm good and I'm going to live my life. No, this is a picture of them with a hunger to grow in their relationship with Jesus. And so Barnabas and Saul, Saul, the one that they were running from, the one that they were being persecuted from, is now sent to them to, to equip them and to build them up. And so we see this picture in, this, in, the, in the church in Antioch that there was a hunger for the Lord. There was a hunger to grow in the relationship with the Lord, to know more about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus in such a way that it impacted their lives. Because in Antioch, we see, and we talked about this last week, we see that, Christ, that followers of Jesus were first called Christians in Antioch. And this word means, it's two words brought together, and it means little Christ. So people looked at their lives. They looked at how they lived, and they're like, you know what? They look like Jesus, and so we're going to call them Christians. And I have to wonder, and I have to ask, can someone look at our lives, and, and by the way that we're growing in our relationship with the Lord, and it's transforming our lives, and we're actually living it, are, can people look at us, and can they say that our life looks different? Can they look at us, our life, and say, oh, there's a Christian? You know, this is the start of fall, and this weekend was the start of uh, football, college football, and everybody's wearing their college football attire, and whether it's Michigan State or Michigan or their, their high school team or whatever, everybody can know that's the team that they're rooting for. But I think about our lives as far as of Jesus first and foremost, can people look at our lives and say, oh, there is a Christian. They've identified their life with Jesus in such a way that they are implementing what he has said into their life, living it out. And so I can see that they are a Christian, because that's the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus that is transforming our lives. And so here in Antioch, people could say, oh, they're Christians. They're growing in the relationship with one another or with, with Jesus, but they're also growing in the relationship with one another. Because look at the very heart of this church. It says now in verse 27, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and some of them and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. You see, at the heart of this church, they were growing in the relationship with Jesus, where it impacted their daily life but they were also encouraging and caring for one another. Here they take up this offering. They hear about a famine that's going to be taking place down in, back in Jerusalem. They listen to the prophetic word, and they send an offering back. The very core of who they were was the care for one another, the care for the, the body of Christ. 
And we can never lose sight of this. We can never lose sight of this, that, that the crucial to the health of the church is the care of the church. And that's why these times are so important, to come together, to be encouraged, to be filled up, to, to be spurred on towards love and good deeds. And I look at Restoration Church, and I look at this body and how you care for one another, and I'm absolutely amazed. And we can never lose sight of that. We can never shrink back from that. I mean, you probably saw the picture uh, this past week that I put out online of, of Nick be, uh, celebrating one year uh, of his sobriety. And we gathered together at Quality Car Wash and, and celebrated what God has done in his life. And it was so great. I'm like, that's the church in action. That's what uh, it means to care for one another in such a beautiful, loving way that points others to Jesus. And there are so many different stories of people having uh, coffee together, texting one another, calling each other, encouraging one another, hearing about uh, something going on and, and reaching out over a phone and just saying, hey, how can I help you? What do you need? I'll bring it over right now. Never underestimate the power of those actions, of caring and loving one another. Because Jesus did say, the world will know that you're my disciples by how you love one another. And so we see in Antioch this church that was so passionate about the gospel, so filled with the Spirit to go out and proclaim the gospel, but they also equipped one another and encouraged one another on a daily basis. But at the very core of who they are, we see in Acts 13, so turn to Acts 13. Acts 12 is an interesting story of Peter being released from prison, and then we hop back into in, in Acts 12, and then we hop back into the church in Antioch in Acts 13. And we get a little picture, and we don't know what led to them uh, um, living this way or, or doing this. We don't know if there's a, uh, some event that happened, but I believe we see at the core here how they respond to the core of who they are and what we can never lose sight of. It says in Acts 13, verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. I've always been struck. You look at verse 2 in chapter 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. It all started with worship and prayer and fasting. This was, again, we don't know what led them to have this. But this was at the core of who they were. They worshiped and they prayed and they fasted. They sought the Lord with all that they are. We must never lose sight of the fact that worship must lead the way. See, there's, in Scripture, there's two pictures of worship. There's a picture of worship out of Romans 12 being our, our entire lives. Offer your body up as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. What you do on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, wherever you're at, is worship. Serving others is worship. Laying down your life for the benefit of others, that is a picture of worship. And I never want to lose sight of that picture. But here it's talking about actually proclaiming and declaring the goodness of God. Worship, another part of it is literally bowing down and kissing the hand of a king. Telling the king how marvelous he is, how wonderful he is. This is something we must never lose sight of because I believe that worship 
is more than just singing songs, more than something that we do to, to begin a service with, to like get people's energy up or to fill some time or to wake people up if there's not enough coffee. No, worship is warfare. Worship is a, is a very spiritual thing that we have to engage in because I, I think about this, like we are in a spiritual battle. We know this, Ephesians uh, 6 says that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this dark world. So in order to engage in a spiritual battle, we must engage and we must use spiritual weapons that the Lord has given us. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and 4 says this, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And what are those weapons? What have we seen historically all throughout Scripture? How did God ask his people to fight when life was overwhelming? When the obstacles were overwhelming, when they were in over their head, how did, they, how did God ask them to fight when the battle seems, seemed too big? Go all the way back to Joshua 6. The people of Israel are, are moving into the promised land. Joshua is leading them after they've wandered in the desert for 40 years. And they see Jericho, this big fortified city. And God said, here's what I want you to do. Here's how you're going to take this city. Once a day, you're going to march around the city. Just one time a day for six days. But on the seventh day, you're going to march around seven times. And you're going to have the, the, the Levites and the, the worshipers out in front. And when I tell you, I want you to shout to the Lord. And they shouted to the Lord, and the walls came crashing down. I mean, you think about that. If you were Joshua, and if you're going to the people of Israel, and you're saying, okay, here's how we're going to win the battle. You're not going to lift a weapon. You're not going to lift a finger. All you're going to do is march around, and then you're going to shout. They're going to be like, what? That doesn't make any sense. That's not a strategic battle plan. It's not a strategic battle plan if you're fighting, against, fighting using the ways of this world. But according to God, like, no, worship leads the way. Worship is warfare. Look at 2 Chronicles verse, uh, or chapter 20. I want to read this whole thing because this is just uh, fast forward a couple years. 2 Chronicles 20, starting at verse 12. The people of Israel were again in over their heads to the point where the king says this. He called together people to pray and to fast. And in verse 12, we see that the king is like saying, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And this is where the story goes. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. Their whole family stood before the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of some other guy, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the middle, midst of the assembly. And he said this, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, all this army that is surrounding you. For the battle is not yours, but God's. That's what we have to remember on a daily basis. The battle isn't ours. The battle is the Lord's. He says this, Tomorrow, Go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them. 
and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judea and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kothites and some other guys stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. They rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And we had taken counsel with the people. He appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praised him in holy attire as they went before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then this verse. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. As they worshipped, as they began to sing, the Lord moved. This happens over and over again. As people worship the Lord, as people proclaim the goodness of the Lord. Again, look at Acts 16. You go to the, go to the New Testament and we see Paul and Silas they had just been beaten for proclaiming Jesus. They had been they were thrown into prison. And what do they do at midnight? They start singing. They start worshiping. They're singing, how great is our God. And then Silas joins in, like, near the name above. Like, they're singing in prison. They're singing in the middle of their captivity as they just have been beaten that day. They're laying there. They're worshiping. And as they worship, all of a sudden, there's this earthquake. And the doors of their cells bust open. Worship is warfare. We must never lose sight of that. And I think what often happens is when we're overwhelmed with life, we turn into a bunch of complainers and like, oh, life is horrible. And you know what? I don't want to minimize anybody's circumstances because they can be overwhelming. But the thing that we must do as followers of Jesus is engage in a spiritual battle using spiritual weapons. And we start, must start proclaiming and declaring the greatness of God. And when that happens, when we do that, we'll be amazed at what happens. Why? Because worship, somehow, some way, I don't understand it, all of a sudden we start to in this in the invisible realm, God's power is at work. God's power is unleashed. And there have been times where I've been worshiping in this space and other spaces where I'm like, wow, something is happening in the spiritual realm. I wish I could see it all, but I believe that something is happening as we worship because worship is powerful. But also worship reminds us of God's power. It reminds us of what we see in 2 Chronicles 20, that the battle doesn't belong to us, that the battle belongs to the Lord. And as we worship, we're so filled with faith that that God, you are able to do way more than we could ever ask or imagine. God, you can conquer enemies. You can can tear down strongholds. God, you can do, you can can heal uh, the sickest person. You can deliver the soul that is furthest from you. Worship is warfare. Worship is powerful because God is at work. But also worship, one of the reasons that I think we have to engage regularly in worship is because worship reminds us of our position. See, too often, too often in our lives, we think it's all on us. And worship is proclaiming that, God, we are so dependent on you. We need you. Have you ever messed up a worship song as you're singing? Have you ever gotten the words? My father-in-law's like, I think I could just call them out. Have you ever got the, the words like mixed up and you're like, ooh, I sang something like, that was, that was bad. I remember singing one time, it's like, 
it's all, that song is, oh, it's all about you, you know, and I'm like, it's all about me, like, you just kind of mess up the words a little bit, you're like, whoa, that was bad, you know, but sometimes we live that way, where we think it's all about us, that it's all dependent on us, but it's not, the battle is the Lord, we must depend on the Lord, I think often when we worry in our lives, when worry creeps up in our lives, it is just misplaced worship. Because we're looking at the situations in our lives and we're like, there's no way that we could ever accomplish whatever we're going through. We think about what, how we can accomplish that and, and, and worship is like, no. You know, and that actually, that leads to worry. And worship reverses that and says, you know what? It's not on you. It's on the Lord. He is strong enough to handle anything that you're going through. And so worship as we engage in worship, it, it, it reframes, it, it reframes our, our mindset to say, you know what, it's, we're not dependent on ourselves, we're dependent on the Lord. And as we do that, as we step into that, as we worship, we see God do so much more than we can ever ask or imagine. He fills us with faith, but he also leads us. Because in Acts 13, it says, as they worship, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Saul and Barnabas and send them out to proclaim the gospel. See, as we worship, the Holy Spirit leads and says, this is what I want you to do. This is where I want you to go. This is how I want you to act. I think too often we rely on our own strategies, on our own abilities in the church, individually and corporately. And we think about, okay, if we just do X, Y, and Z, then the church will grow. And I remember reading Eugene Peterson, who translated the message, when he was pastoring a church, he got so grieved because somebody handed him a big red binder. And he said, and they said, they handed him the binder and said, this is how you grow a church. And he looked through it and he was grieved because there were so many human strategies in that book. So he looked at it and he chucked it in the trash. It was void of a dependence on the Lord and a hunger for the Holy Spirit to know. I don't want to be a place I don't want to be a person individually. And I don't want us to be a body where we're just looking at earthly strategies and saying, okay, this is what we're supposed to do. Instead, I want to be a body that is hungry for the Lord, that is worshiping the Lord, that is hungry for the Holy Spirit to move, that is desperate on God and is full of faith, knowing that as we worship, as we cry out to the Lord, He's going to lead. The Holy Spirit is going to lead and guide. And so this morning, that's what we want to do. We want to transition to a time of worship. We're just going to have an extended time of worship. At the very beginning, we're just going to have, it's going to be all vertical. We're just going to be declaring the greatness of God and just telling him how wonderful he is. And we're going to do that for a while. And then after a while, we're going to transition to, to a time of prayer where we'll pray for one another. Where we'll, you know, if somebody has a prayer concern or something that they have going on, we'd love to hear about it and love to pray for you. And then we'll see where the Lord goes after that. But I just wanted to have some time here this morning to have some interrupt, interrupted time of worship, of seeking the Lord. And so I know we all have a lot going on. We all have things that we're thinking of. I want us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to enter into a time and let all of that go and just proclaim how great God is. And then we'll eventually get to a time of praying for one another. So I want us to stand. I want the worship team to come up.